Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you have any questions for our guests, there are many ways you can contact the show. You can post a question on our wall on Facebook, Skype us, send us a tweet on Twitter to at The Organic View, or you can contact me directly at June Stoyer. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Austria's Finest Naturally, authentic pumpkin seeds and pumpkin seed oil from the Steiermark, available at organicuniverse.com. Listeners of The Organic View can receive $1 off their purchase by using the coupon code ORGVIEW. That's O-R-G-V-I-E-W. For more offers, please visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming back Robin Reberg, and we're going to be talking about her best-selling book, The Ultimate Gluten-Free Cookie Book. Tis the season for those familiar smells of fresh holiday cookies baking in the oven. For people who have food sensitivities to gluten, freshly baked cookies were often something that wasn't easily enjoyed due to the limitations of available products and recipes. However, thanks to Robin Reberg's best-selling book, The Ultimate Gluten-Free Cookie Book, there are a myriad of choices that can take you down memory lane with a selection of over 100 original, easy-to-make recipes that include everything from gluten-free cookies, bars, brownies, holiday treats, and there's just so much stuff in this book. It's just amazing. And what's also nice is that the book provides tips and explanations for the novice gluten-free baker, including what exactly gluten-free really means, criteria for choosing the right flour, advice for preparing your kitchen before baking, and even a breakdown of the expenses involved. Now, Robin has really a tremendous background. She's got 20 years of experience with gluten-free cooking and baking, and she's also the founder and former owner of Miss Robin's Gluten-Free Foods, and she has authored a few other books, Gluten-Free in Five Minutes, and you won't believe it's gluten-free. So I would like to welcome to the show Ms. Robin Reberg. Good afternoon, Robin. Hi, it's good to be here. (laughs) Great to have you, Robin. I love talking to people like you because it's like magic. I mean, I find that when I talk to people that just have such a passion for what they do and they just do it so instinctively, the conversation never is dull and it's always enriching. Now, um, Robin, can you tell our audience about yourself, about some of the other things that you've been doing, and how you came to become an author? That is, going back about 20 years ago, a friend of mine asked me to make her something to eat, and being the foodie I am, I said sure, and then of course I was given the proverbial gluten-free food list, (laughs) and I got scared. And with a little bit of time, I started a little company called Miss Robin, and we had gluten-free um, mixes to make some yummy treats, and those should actually resurface on the market here since the company has been sold recently. But um, anyway, I developed these mixes, and after having three children and two preterm labors, I realized that running a company was going to be a little hard for me. So I switched over to 
writing books, and it's just been an absolute joy. And each book has flowed into the next based upon what was um, learned in the first one. Now, it's interesting when you speak to people that have a passion for fine foods, that understand the importance of ingredients, and also with baking, accuracy. Um, How long did it take you to put the first book together? (laughs) The first book took about two years to put together. It it was hard because there were no formulas. The um, approach I was using, unlike the industry standard um, of using blends, which was pretty popular, I was taking a new path, and that required some new food science. So it just took a lot of work to figure out a little this, a little of that, uh, how everything reacts, because you're taking independent flower characteristics as opposed to blend characteristics, which are more forgiving, much like wheat flour is more forgiving. What were some of the challenges that you faced when just trying to come up with all these recipes? Because you don't personally have any food sensitivities, especially to gluten, so just writing this type of a book had to have presented itself with uh, a number of challenges. There there were, um, some, some of it was just so frustrating. Um, early on in the industry, and, and some products have gotten better and mm-hmm. some, unfortunately, have not, the dryness factor was just huge. People would take the time, they would make these nice products, and the day after they would be all dried out. Um, people would immediately slice them and throw them in the freezer and then pull them out and need to microwave them in order to retain the freshness. And then after they microwave them, they might throw them in the toaster and just a, a huge amount of work for the consumer in order to enjoy a tasty, moist product. That's pretty interesting. I mean, you don't, I guess when you're not dealing with the food sensitivity, you tend to take for granted the availability of the ingredients, the flexibility of the ingredients, as well as the knowledge of how to incorporate some of these ingredients that, you know, maybe may not have, um, I guess, had as much exposure uh, as far as the modern uh, household uh, is concerned. I mean, there's some ingredients that I've been coming across where it's like, wow, you know, this is fantastic, and uh, there's, there's so much that I've done in my career, and when I come across a new ingredient, it's it's kind of like a new toy, but when you talk to other people, they're like, oh, yeah, we've been using this for years. So it's it's kind of um, it, it's an interesting place to be. Now, with this particular book, uh, you have so many recipes in here. I mean, so many different types of cookies. You have meringue. You have shortbread. How long did it take you to perfect the recipes? I mean, the recipes are so um, healthy for the most part. I mean, you really don't have uh, too much um, junk in the recipe, so to speak, as far as you know, the the um, typical cookie recipe has all sorts of sugar and, and uh, lard and this and that and the other thing, and you basically keep it, you know, very simple. And the ingredients especially the quantities, are not terribly expensive. 
they're really not very expensive. And there are a couple properties. For example, with rice flour, rice flour carries a flavor farther. So you might use less vanilla. You might need less sugar. And all of these properties, because we break it down to using just one flour at a time, you you get to um, utilize the benefits that are specific to that flour. And it's kind of a, a win-win. It's like, wow, I didn't know that. Wow, mm-hmm. we're having a, um, you know, a whole grain cookie here with no dairy in it, with no um, substantial amount of sugar, and it still tastes fabulous. And speaking of rice flour, you have wild rice flour, you have um, you know, traditional rice flour. Uh, do you have any particular preference, and how do you know what type of rice flour to use? Um, in this particular cookie book, I have tried very hard to use brown rice flour primarily um, as the rice flour that I use. There is occasion when I will use a white rice flour just because it's a little bit more delicate. Mm. And, of course, you can substitute the two, but the substitution would be just a little bit different. You would require um, actually probably about 10% more white rice flour over a brown rice flour just by its baking properties. And what is the difference in the flavor? I mean, does the brown rice, because I've only worked with the white rice flour. Um, I haven't quite uh, had an opportunity to delve into the different types of um, flour that are, are available. I mean, I've worked I've worked with uh, plantain flour, kamut flour, uh, but when it comes to rice flour, um, I recently um, received some wild rice flour from Canada from Neosep Harvest, uh, and uh, it's just, I mean, the wild rice itself is superb, and so I'm really looking forward to... Um, utilizing the the wild rice flour, um, I just want to make sure that I utilize it in a recipe that really deserves the quality of the flour um, that I'm working with. And I kind of treat my ingredients like that. Like, uh, for example, um, my good vanilla, I have Massey's Organic Bourbon Vanilla, I tend to use for the recipes that um, really call for something that requires the sophistication of a really good vanilla, whereas if it's something where it's just, um, you know, just a minor note in the recipe, then, um, you know, I'll, I'll use something else. But uh, what is what is your recommendation as far as working with the different types of rice flour? And actually, is there is there an out, a difference in the outcome with the finished baked product? Uh, there is. You're going to have a slightly more delicate flavor with a white rice flour than a brown rice flour. But, I mean, unless your palate is extraordinarily sophisticated and you were a person who used cake flour in your baking as -hmm. opposed to traditional flour, uh, you're not going to notice. They're going to be great. They're going to be absolutely great cookies. What would be, uh, I mean, would you use the different rice flours, could you use them all for cookies or would you use one particular type of rice flour for a particular type of cookie as opposed to, um, you know, just um, 
treating it like an all-purpose rice flour. The only thing I would do is if you have a very, very delicate cookie, like um, perhaps a spritz, and you wanted to enhance that delicate nature of it, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Use the white rice flour. Interesting. Now, another question that I have for you is when you are creating these recipes, and, I mean, you have some really phenomenal recipes in here. Um, You have a pecan sandy-style cookie, which um, I'm very eager to make for my own family, and you have an Oreos-style cookie, which actually I just received a tweet on Twitter today. Uh, Someone was tweeting about Oreos and... um, now, the quality of food, and uh, we got into a discussion about organic Oreo cookies. Now, how long did it take you to come up with this recipe? I'm sure that this had to have taken quite some time. I get into a zone when I'm baking. And <laughs> there, I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. When I go into the kitchen and I have a goal of creating whatever recipe I begin. And if the first try doesn't turn out, I give it a second try. If the second try doesn't turn out, I give it a third try. If the third try doesn't turn out, I walk away from my kitchen for the day. I get into a zone where things start meshing, and in a day I can create zero cookies, and sometimes that will continue for several days. (laughs) Or I can create five cookies. It just depends on how the the natural being in sync happens. It's it's magic. I mean, it's when you get into the zone, it's it's just magic in the kitchen. And it's one of my favorite things that happens. I can completely relate to that. I remember uh, a couple years back, I was on a mission to find the perfect sugar cookie. Now, it's the holiday season, and people tend to think that, oh, sugar cookies, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. Well, it is, because the thing is is that sugar cookies are actually pretty expensive to make if you're trying to make a really um, high-quality sugar cookie that, you know, obviously it's not uh, something that um, people who are con- uh, conserving uh, their calories are going to be eating. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's a pretty fattening cookie, and with that, the ingredients are, well, the ingredients that I chose to use were pretty pricey, and I can really relate to what you're saying because I found myself getting really aggravated because either the cookie was just not uh, browning the way that I wanted it to, or it it just didn't have the right consistency. And when you're making something that requires um, expensive ingredients, it does get a little aggravating. So I appreciate the fact that after so many tries, you just walk away from it. And I think that's a really good solution, especially when you're trying to perfect something. I remember just spending an entire day baking pretzels, you know, the, the Bavarian-style pretzels. Um, I was trying to modify an old family recipe, and... Unfortunately, the recipe was written in a very old way of uh, writing recipes uh, where during that time people didn't write down proper measurements 
Um, it, it's just interesting when you look at some of these old cookbooks where, or, or just even family recipes where they have these weird names or weird expressions. Sometimes I read these recipes and I'm just like, what were they thinking? You know, And there's no urban dictionary for cooking where you can go to find out some of these things. Sometimes it's just a matter that you'll meet a chef or someone who's, you know, such as yourself, um, a very skilled and talented author who's done so much, uh, and you could just bounce these terms off of them to find out, okay, well, what exactly does this mean? Or have you ever heard of this before? Or what do you think it means? So uh, I just remember spending the entire day trying to perfect my Bavarian pretzel recipe and modernize it and also reduce the quantity. Um, it was a little tricky because it's um, it's something that requires yeast. Uh, and it wasn't just a matter of mathematics, not the way that this recipe was given to me. Right. Uh, but lo and behold, I think I made everybody sick to death of the taste of pretzels for <laughs> not a very long time. And uh, lo and behold, now I have my perfected recipe. Uh, so on that note, who is your taste testing panel, if you will, that has the privilege <laughs> of tasting all of your recipes? I mean, how do you do that? Do, do you have, do you go around to your neighbor's house uh, just saying, hey, look, I just baked this batch of uh, lemon tassies or something like that. You know, can you try them and tell me what you think? Or, you know, do you wait for the mailman to come around? Uh, what do you do? Well, no, nobody is safe. Nobody is safe. <laughs> um, but one one thing I wanted to mention that jumped to my mind, and hopefully this will will help your um, listeners. When you're working with gluten-free foods, just because a family recipe calls for um, butter or a special flavoring or a special something. It doesn't necessarily translate. That may not be the best ingredient to achieve that same taste you're seeking. Oh, exactly. And I've I found that out the hard way. And sometimes I found that some of the ingredients that I substituted with other ingredients, like for example, um, one of the things that I use in uh, pizza dough, I don't use sugar. I use honey. I find that the flavor, and I know that this is a show about cookies, but it's just an example, the first thing that I thought of. Um, I find that it just gives it a different flavor that's more appealing to uh, my my palate. So, uh, you know, and my family seems to agree. But when it comes to cookies, there's certain recipes. I remember um, there's a recipe that my mother taught me for making uh, struffoli, which are, it, it's, it's an Italian tradition. I'm not Italian, but uh, it's just a recipe that my mother used to make all the time. And out of seven kids, I'm the only kid that paid attention. Uh, well, retained the recipe at any rate. And uh, from memory, I was able to recreate the recipe as an adult. And I've modified it to suit my own taste. And that's something that I wasn't really afraid to do because I kind of feel that you have to... Uh, experiment and make things according to what makes you happy. Uh, and unfortunately, the one recipe that I will not make is fruit cake because I can't stand those those uh, fruits that you have to use the the 
oh, it's just file. But uh, <laughs> I have <laughs> I have tried some uh, organic recipes where they use uh, real fruit and nuts, not that um, you know the the, I don't candy know, the the candied fruits. It's just just the childhood memories of eating that stuff and just cringing. With each bite is just enough. But uh, in any event, I I appreciate that contribution because I think that when you're talking about recipes, baking is so particular because you really have to be accurate with your measurements, but it doesn't mean that you can't experiment and substitute. Exactly. And I think that's something that many people tend to forget. Now, it's interesting, one of the most popular cookies, especially around the holidays because it's such a versatile cookie to use in many different types of desserts, is the pizzelle. And you not only have a recipe for almond, you also have one for chocolate, um, and you have just a a standard vanilla one. Um, How long did it take you to create that recipe, and what inspired you? The grocery store inspired me. <laughs> I mean, the um, cook, the cookie cookbooks I have um, for traditional cookies. I I like to I I try very very hard not to read anybody else's gluten free work because I don't want to think inside that box. I want to bounce, and we talked about this before. I bounce. I am not limited um, by walking the walk of the diet. And that that gives me such an incredible freedom. I'm not. Um, I, I I don't have a particular mindset that um, I need to use a particular fat. I don't have a mindset that I need to, you know, to not add. Um, for for example, I will add just a pitch of vanilla when I'm working with sorghum because it softens the flavor, not because I particularly want the cookie to taste like vanilla, but it just does it. Um, anyway, and, and that recipe is much the same. I was so excited I got to go buy a Pizzelle press. <laughs> I was like, woohoo! <laughs> what does that cost you? Oh, I don't know, about 20 bucks. Not bad, not bad at all. What is your best find as far as your baking tools? Like, what, what's the one gadget in your kitchen that you're really proud of? Wow. I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I bought... Um, I bought this, it, uh, it, it's a food processor that's made by, I think it's GE, and it's kind of like the KitchenAid, the, the $300 ones, mm-hmm. but I think I paid something like 20 bucks, and I just can't get over how much I could do with it. And I use it for everything from making gnocchi to um, I make these, um, they're kind of like... Um, it, it, it's like a, a a chocolate truffle, but um, I make that. I don't eat them because I don't eat the cream cheese. But you use cream cheese and you use um, cookies, and you basically take the cookies and you crumble them, and then you mix and you fold in the cream cheese with the food processor. And then basically what you do is you dip it in chocolate, um, and then you can dip it in sprinkles or coconut, whatever you want. And they're amazing, and they're really good when you freeze them. They sound delicious. Oh, they're amazing, and they're really not that fattening. It's just that I don't eat cream cheese anymore, so um, I'm trying to find an appropriate substitution so that I will eat it, but uh, my family just loves them, and uh, they're always a big hit at any any type of social activities and whatnot, and, um, you know, of course, my stuff is organic. 
but um, uh, it's it's uh, there's so many different things that you could do. But that one little gadget is just it's my favorite thing in the kitchen. I have two tools, well, especially with cookies that that I use all the time. Uh, the the first is naturally a a good stand mixer. I have a KitchenAid. I've had it for years. I love it. It does a great job. But when I was making the gluten-free Fig Newton-style cookie, Mm -hmm. I kept thinking, how am I ever going to deal with these figs? What am I going to do? And I pulled out my handy stick blender as I was reducing the, um, the figs in order to achieve the appropriate consistency, and I just did it right in the pan. It was amazing. But beyond that, I'm really a, a knife and cutting board kind of girl. Is it is it that you enjoy just the process of the preparation, or do you think that it gives it more of a homemade flair? Um, why do you prefer to do it by hand as opposed to using a food processor or something like that? Oh, my gosh, you're going to know me so personally. I have a small <laughs> kitchen. <laughs> I don't have room for very many um, appliances. I, I I completely understand. My kitchen is incredibly small, but it's amazing what comes out of that kitchen. And uh, when I have friends that visit, they're just like, wow, your kitchen's small. And when I look at their kitchens, they have these kitchens that have two refrigerators, two dishwashers, and all sorts of stuff. And right. you now they've they've got a house full of people, and you know, obviously the big house to go with it. And um, my kitchen is just small but it's it is very effective at giving me what I need to do what I need um and now I'm right with you um I don't have little gadgets for this little gadgets for that I just have my few toys and that's about it now um one of the other things that I wanted to ask you when it comes to your baking wear um I know I personally have stuff that belonged to, uh, I think it was probably my mother's, if not uh, my, uh, just a, an older family member. Do you have any particular type of bakeware that you're kind of, uh, that you favor? I tend, yes, um, and, and it's not that any cookie sheet won't work, but I tend to go to my local kitchen supply house mm-hmm. and I buy quarter sheet um, cookie sheets. They're they're aluminum, they're lightweight, they hold at least a dozen cookies. They're they're also uh, disposable uh, in the sense that if you're bringing them to somebody's house, uh, you could leave them on the tray, present them, you know, obviously uh, make them more presentable, you know, with a little bit of um, garnish and whatnot, but uh, yeah, oh, that's I'm, a great I'm idea. I'm sorry, we're misunderstanding each other. I'm, I mean the thick baking aluminum. Oh, 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 okay. I thought you meant the disposable kind. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. But that's an idea, too. <laughs> that it is. Um, which brings me to another question. Um, out of all the holiday cookies that you make each and every year, what's your favorite? Oh, that's not fair. Um <laughs> It's probably spritz. I, I'm a traditionalist. They're they're pretty. They're dainty. You can pretend you're only going to eat three and have twenty. It's great. 
you could you could do what all the big manufacturers are doing. You make the teeny tiny versions so that um, instead of eating three, you can make uh, ones that are a quarter of the size so that you could eat ten of them and feel like you've had ten <laughs> bigger ones. Um, no, another I thing that I wanted to ask you, when you came out with your Almond Joy style cookies, uh, let's face it, um, most of America loves Almond Joys, and I don't know if it's just because of the the wacky commercials, but I used to love Almond Joys, and um, now that um, I'm very um, particular, especially about my foods, and unfortunately there's no organic Almond Joy that I know of, um, I tend to make my my own if that's something that I choose to eat. Um, Now, with this particular recipe, uh, I noticed that you offer the opportunity to either utilize cornstarch or potato starch. And that's a really interesting uh, way of preparing these. Why potato starch? That's that's a really uh, clever uh, way to prepare these. Um, It's so many things go back to my prior works. I do it because a fairly large segment of the population has a corn intolerance or okay. likes to avoid corn in their food products. Mm, very interesting. I, I mean, that that's just a really smart way to present the recipe, uh, and it's nice to have the options. Now, with the coconut, just out of curiosity, how does it come out? With, uh, if you were to use the fresh uh, flaked coconut instead of, I'm assuming that this is um, uh, the, the dehydrated stuff that uh, you know you'll typically find in the baking section. Right, the prepackaged sweetened. Yeah. What if you wanted to opt to use, say, a freshly grated coconut, something I think like that? Be fabulous. Huh? Because I, I think I'd like to make a little variation of that because I, I think that uh, would be really appealing for me. Now, another thing that you utilize in this recipe is the sweetened condensed milk. And I understand that it has its purposes, but I won't touch the stuff no matter what you what you tell me. <laughs> yeah. What would you advise for people such as myself that don't consume the milk? Is there any substitution that you think would be um, just as viable that would work well with this recipe? My gut feeling on that, and again, it's a gut feeling. I'd have to test it out in the kitchen. And I very, very, very rarely use it, but I would probably, on that special occasion, go with coconut milk. Yeah, I think that's an excellent option. And you realize, Robin, that I'm trying to push you into making an organic, gluten-free, vegan cookbook, right? I think that can happen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with your your skills... um, Anything can happen, I think. Uh, now, getting back to just all the recipes in here, I mean, it's like which one to make first. Uh, there's just so many. And you took the time to also include a section of egg-free chocolate cookies. So I think right there uh, you're kind of uh, dabbling in the whole um, uh, vegan land of uh, baking here. Um with the egg-free recipes, what what challenges did you have when you're trying to make some of these recipes? I mean, especially with the gingerbread men. Gingerbread men are kind of funny. Uh, 
I mean, they're nasty when you burn them, but when you're just trying to get the right recipe, if you don't have the right ingredients, that that flavor can be a little overpowering. If if someone is egg free, or overpowering, should I say? Yeah. If if someone is egg free, that is probably one of the best recipes they can try. Um, I have a a very good friend, and she uses, and although she is not egg free herself. That is the recipe she chooses to use each year to do her gingerbread houses. Speaking of which, when you're creating the gingerbread house, if if some if someone were to pick up this book um, and decide that you know what I want to make more of the gingerbread uh, recipe um, and use it to make a gingerbread house. How do you go about doing that, especially so that you can make it gluten-free? Are there any, is there any advice that you have for our audience, especially if they want to be festive but, you know, they've been afraid to use any of the kits out there? I'd be afraid to use any of the kits out there, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. uh, just because I don't know what they put in them. I mean, some of the ingredients, they're like mystery ingredients. What I would probably suggest, and you certainly can use the um, the gingerbread men recipe mm-hmm. and pursue that and then cut sizes of appropriate shapes and everything. But I probably wouldn't do that. I would probably take a leap over into the graham cracker recipes. And if you want the ginger flavor, go ahead and add a little bit of ginger and add a little bit of cinnamon to that recipe because that recipe naturally gets you into the habit of doing the squares, doing the shapes that we're already accustomed to and then building from there. It would be, I think, a very easy comfort level, especially for a novice. Mm. And I think that, uh, especially if you're working with kids, I think it's a great idea to have them start off with the small batches and then as you're building, what I'd like to do is instead of just building one gingerbread house, I tend to just make a collection of little uh, structures so that if the recipe doesn't go as planned, uh, you know, there's another batch on its way. Right. So that's one of the things that I've been I found is helpful, especially if you're working with kids that want to be involved. Um, I found that if you work when you're working with kids, if you give them specific responsibilities. Uh, and you know, some kids, they don't necessarily want to be mixing everything and doing this and doing that. Sometimes you'll find that with kids, when you're trying to introduce baking to them, if you just give them, say, one task, uh, such as uh, cracking the eggs or um, being in charge of cleanup, especially if they're very young, if they're toddlers, you know, uh, <laughs> depending upon how mature they are, if you tell them, well, you're in charge of cleanup, they really take that job seriously. And it's just amazing how attentive they are, especially to what you're doing. And if, um, for example, you have a child that is able to read and they're watching what you're doing, they'll say, hey, wait a second, you didn't get down to eye level. Um, or, you know, you need to add another half a cup to that recipe because you only added one cup. It's amazing how they kind of monitor you, you know? Yes. I have um, some neighbor children that come over and bake with me, and it's fabulous. Yeah, it's. I, I think especially this time of the year, that's when you really create so many memories, not just with the finished cookie, but 
just the whole process of working together with your family, or even if you're getting together with friends, uh, that's something that um, I've done throughout the years. I'll get together with uh, different family members and friends, and we'll bring a particular recipe that is significant in our family, and we'll share it with our friends, and we'll talk about, you know, just how uh, different family members uh, made this or just different things that transpired during the holidays. And it's a nice way to not only celebrate, uh, you know, just the seasons, um, but also to make new memories with friends, you know. Now, my next question has to deal with uh, nuts. When it comes to nuts, unfortunately, it happens every so often. Not so much anymore. Now I'm just so ultra particular about everything. But in the past, I remember just randomly going shopping, and then I would pick up walnuts, I would pick up this, I would pick up that. And then all of a sudden, by the time I finally got around to using them, the nuts, especially the walnuts, would would become rancid. Do you have any recommendations if you're making a recipe and all of a sudden you take a whiff of the nuts and you're just like, oh, boy, um, these are kind of on the verge of going rancid. I mean, um, any advice, any, any uh, quick fixes for problems when, when you begin adding nuts and then you realize, wait a second, you know, I'm going to take these out. These these have been sitting too long. Yeah, I, w- I would abandon ship and get creative. Look at, look at what you have in your cabinet. I mean, pairing some dried cranberries instead of some nuts can be amazing. It, it It's just using what's in your cabinet and not being afraid to go there. Now, what about utilizing different uh, nut extracts? How do you, or what do you recommend people use uh, if they don't have the actual nuts? If they want to, if if they only have the extracts, how do you go about uh, compensating? Uh, especially with a gluten-free cookie, I I would just use a standard rule of thumb that if most of the recipes you're using within that author's work, and if it uses a teaspoon or a teaspoon and a half. I I would just keep it real simple. Start there, because you don't you don't want to have overpowering. It'd be much no. better to have an understated cookie than something that's going to go in the trash can. I I completely agree. Um, now, could you also use a nut butter if you have that available? You absolutely can use a nut butter, but if you use a nut butter, what you need to do is to treat a nut butter both as a fat and as a flour. So yeah, that's very important because people tend to forget that nuts are actually a source of fat. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, they're about 50% fat. So if you were to want to add in a quarter cup of nut butter, take out an eighth of a cup of oil and oil or whatever your other fat is and take out an eighth of a cup of your flour. Now, can't you also substitute fat for, say, applesauce or some sort of fruit fruit puree? Okay, there is. You're starting to go. You're you're starting to have more changes. 
all of the recipes when you're dealing with gluten-free baking are likely to have a binder in them, like xanthan mm. gum. Xanthan gum is going to react more strongly with a water-based component, like applesauce. So if you switch in some of your nut butter, which means you're, you know, if you have an oil instead, you're going to have to increase the amount of your xanthan gum. If you're pulling out some of your xanthan gum, you're likely to, um, I'm sorry, if you're pulling, anyway, if you're doing the reverse, you're going to have to um, decrease the amount of your xanthan gum. And that is an issue if anyone chooses to use a gluten-free cookie mix. If you're going to do a substitution of applesauce with the oil or the fat, you are likely to have a chewier or spongier cookie. Thank you. That's um, that's something that I think uh, people aren't aware of. I mean, when you're working with the non-gluten-free recipes, I think you have a little bit more flexibility. Uh, I, I think it's because of the way the flour yields itself. Um, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. The the ratios are so much more precise in gluten-free baking, mm. especially when you go down to single grains. Now, Robin, we have a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, now, keep in mind, <laughs> while we have uh, quite a diversified audience, um, some of these questions, I think, are important to ask because there are people out there who are either not talented when it comes to baking, I mean, it's interesting. When you talk to people, they'll say, oh, I can cook anything. But when it comes to baking, no, nope, not my thing. And then you have other people that can bake up a storm, but when it comes to cooking, no. Nope. Uh, but it's it's interesting, the people that you meet that really have a flair for both. Uh, now, this question is from Ashley. She'd like to know if it's really necessary to utilize a, cook, a cooling rack for your cookies, or can't you just put them on a plate? Um, I, I think that that's an interesting question because uh, the cooling racks, I think, are very important. I know I've seen friends that will just use any flat surface, but I think that depending upon what the cookie is, you really need that rack in order to let the air hit the cookie. Um, you know, What is your opinion? I have two opinions on that. The first opinion is if you put a cookie on a cookie rack, the air is going to circulate around it and you're not going to end up with a moist bottom. So do you want a moist bottom on your cookie? Probably not. So a cookie rack is optimal. But if you don't have a cookie rack, if you happen to have a marble plate or a baking stone or if you have a um, granite counter, those can work very well, too, because they're going to have a cooler surface, and they'll help cool down your cookie more quickly. Thank you. Uh, the next question, and thank you so much for the question, um, Ashley. The next question is from Sharon. Uh, she'd like to know how you can incorporate the yogurt into the recipes. Uh, she wrote, I've seen so many, uh, I've seen this new fad where you're using the Greek yogurt, and never thought to use it in cookie recipes. Do you have any suggestions? 
Um, if you find a recipe that calls for a liquid, whether it is applesauce, like many of my recipes, you can switch over and you can put a yogurt in there, but you may have to adjust the amount of xanthan gum again. Mm. It's. Uh, I, I think that um, especially if um, with the yogurt, I, I find that um, just cooking in general, yogurt tends to add um, more of a richer flavor, um, especially if you're working with um, cream or cheese or anything like that. I just found that it it can really enhance the flavors, but that's, you know, uh, baking, I haven't really done too much with it um, unless it was a specific recipe that called for it. Yeah. Um, the next question has to do with uh, utensils. Uh, this next question is from Paul. He'd like to know, is there really a difference between these glass all-purpose measuring cups and the other measuring cups that they have out? I don't see what the difference is. It just is very confusing. I find that if you buy a decent brand, you're very likely to get good measurements. But I do want to note that when you're baking with gluten-free flours, if you have a recipe that calls by weight, especially for the the grain, it's just going to be more accurate. What What happens in these recipes is I may be in my kitchen and my bag of flour has been sitting here for two months, and so you might have some settling. Or if you have someone who has their flour in a big canister and they take their cup and they smash it in and they pull it up to the side and then they level it off. Or if you have someone who puts a spoon into their bag of flour and puts it into their measuring cup and then levels it off. You can have easily a 25% difference in the weight of flour. And that's going to make a difference in a gluten-free recipe. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, uh, you know, once again, um, with the gluten-free recipes that Robin has created, there's just the, the, the detail is there. It's just very clean cut as far as uh, the measurements. Robin even went so far as to include the metrics measurements, which is great, especially for our friends um, overseas and uh, across the border. Um, you know, in America, people tend to not uh, conform to the metric system. I happen to be guilty of that, but uh, it's interesting when I get a recipe from one of my friends who's in Europe, and it's all metrics. I'm just like, oh, I gotta convert this. But uh, it's always nice to have the two options side by side. Uh, Robin, do you have any suggestions? Uh, that this is coming from Summer. She'd like to know, do you have any suggestions for dipping, cho- uh, dipping cookies in chocolate so that you don't have a big glob of chocolate and it, it evens itself out? I have a couple suggestions. If you choose to use baking chips, and you melt them in your microwave. I'm assuming people, however you melt them, it doesn't really matter. Whether you use baking chips or a bar, if you use the chips, they are going to set up faster on you, and it's going to most likely provide a thicker coating. 
if you use a bar, um, it will be workable for a longer period of time and you're likely to have a slightly thinner coating. If you place your your cookies, your your dipping, whatever you do, if you put it over a cooling rack, it's it's a great way to just let the extra chocolate fall through. Thank you. Uh, now, this next question is in regards to your fortune cookie recipe. Fortune cookies tend to be a little tricky because of the fact that you have to fold them while they're hot. What do you recommend that you use um, in order to handle them? Because they they really get um, cool very quickly, and then once they cool down, they just break. What yeah. do you use as far as gloves? I don't. You use, you just use your fingers. Wow. I do. I do. I tend to use a very very thin edge spatula when I first pull the cookie off of the tray, and then I work very quickly. When I make um, and once again the the fortune cookies that I've made. Um, Actually, the fortune cookies that I made actually aren't gluten-free but because uh, they don't use uh, these cornstarch. Uh, what I honestly have used is a pair of hemp gloves. And uh, what I did was um, I bought the hemp gloves, and hemp is something that's grown uh, traditionally without pesticides, and uh, I laundered them in uh, uh, my organic detergent, and then... Uh, that particular pair I would use, you know, for kitchen type, um, you know, projects. And I just found that the gloves enable me to be able to, you know, touch the cookies without burning my hands. Um, I give you a lot of credit. You're really devoted. I I burn myself way too much, and at this time <laughs> I tend to, uh, you know, guard myself with the apron and the whole nine yards and, uh I just uh, look at it this way. All the scars that I have, I don't want to add to them. But uh, now, when you're making your fortune cookies, uh, do you have any special tips as far as creating the messages? Do you type them? What do you do? I I do whatever works. It it really just doesn't matter. I just think it's great that we're able to yeah, well, I have to tell you, one, one of the things I'm looking forward to, and I, and I know it's going to happen someday, is I want someone who is gluten-free to send me a letter and to say that they put a marriage proposal in it. Aw. <laughs> I'm, okay, I'm waiting folks. for it, but it, do, it doesn't matter. Just make sure you use a nice, clean sheet of paper. Okay, folks, you heard it straight from Robin Reberg. She would like for someone who's out there to send her an email. And, Robin, what's your email address? Is Robin Reberg at Verizon.net. <laughs> and what you have to do is show her your creation of the gluten-free fortune cookie that uh, you have specially made for that person that you love in which you are putting a marriage proposal in it. And that will wind up on theorganicview.com as well. If you send that picture, I will personally guarantee that we will gladly post that for all to see. So the invitation is out there, folks. <laughs> Feel free to respond to Robin. Now, uh, Robin, what are your plans for the holidays this year? What 
if uh, people were to just drop in your house, which uh, I would just love to be a fly on the wall, what cookies do you typically make each year for your family? I, I mean, so many to choose from, but what, it, what it are the ones that we could expect? It's too hard. Um, I, I admit to doing chocolate chip. I do spritz. But having written the book, I would be incredibly tempted to throw on some of the Girl Scout Thin Mint style cookies. So, and also the uh, one of my favorites is the Fig Newton style cookies. I, I can't help it. I go back to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great recipe. I mean, when you create something that's so unique and it's a really good recipe, why not? And, of course, you do have to do sugar cookies. You, you just have to. Now, do you have any particular shapes that you like to uh, cut them in, or do you do the rolled cookies where you just cut them into circles? I do rolled cookies and cook them, cut them into Christmas trees and candy canes and circles and anything. And what about accessories? Do you do you use any particular sprinkles? Are there any like there are so many interesting. Um, sprinkles and all sorts of different accessories that you that are edible that you can put in your cookies. Uh, I'm still waiting for the organic version, folks, but uh, there's so many wonderful things that are out there to really just jazz up the cookies. Um, have you come across anything in particular that you just think is just amazing um, that you'd also like to share? Um, I am a traditionalist. I do like to do a little bit of the piping with icing, and there are some commercially available icings that are gluten-free. But I do want to caution anyone who buys icing in the in the tubes, if they're going mainstream, be careful. There are a couple I've seen that have gluten in them. And they may not any longer, but last year when I was checking them out, they did. So just be careful whether you're get, grabbing some sprinkles or whatever check the label. Yes, definitely, without a doubt, check the label. Find out where uh, the brand of flour that you're buying, make sure that it is not from um, a facility where they process um, non-gluten flours. And uh, with the frosting, that's frosting, I mean, in your opinion, how hard is frosting to make? Really not hard. And I mean, with your piping bags, um, do you have a fancy set or do you do the old uh, plastic bag or, or parchment paper rolled up method? Um, actually, one of my favorite things to do is to take a zip, ta- a zip style plastic bag mm-hmm. and put my little piping tip in one corner and snip the edge off and put a tip on and use that instead. It's easy, readily available, and you don't run out. How do you keep the te- how do you keep the tip on the bag without it falling off? I use a coupler, coupler, ah. coupler. I have done the par- parchment paper method. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you name it. When you can't find a piping bag and you need something in a snap, it's it's amazing how creative you get. But yeah. um, I like that idea. That's that's great. Uh, and lastly, Robin, with with the cookies, uh, if 
if if you would like to make some cookies, say you want to make them this weekend, get all of your holiday baking out of the way, um, how long will they last? And, you know, is it ideal to make them ahead of time? And can you freeze them? Uh, you can freeze them. It depends on what kind of cookie you make. Anything that has a jam or something is going to want to bind with the the cookie itself, and those are really best assembled at the last minute. But sure, bake them ahead. We have a question from Mary. She'd like to know, instead of using jam, can you just simply um, uh, take some chopped fruit and, um, I guess, blanch the fruit and add some sugar and use that instead? That would be a delicious alternative. And I would do that assembly at the last minute before you serve them. Yeah, that's, yeah. And one final question, Robin. When you're trying to um, put together a whole presentation of different holiday cookies to give as a gift, do you have any special tips that you'd like to share with our audience as far as different things that you do to just really uh, make it more presentable and give it that holiday flair so that it really, um, the, the person that's receiving it uh, just has a, a beaming smile on their face the minute that they see, oh, wow, Robin just brought over all these cookies. Oh, my goodness, I can't wait to sink my teeth into these. You know, what what do you do? I like to use cookie tins. I love cookie tins because it's just like a treasure. It's kind of like getting a box of chocolates, but you're getting the treasure. I like to keep my cookies small. I like to make little stacks of two or three or four and put them in little paper circle wrappers like you might use for um, for baking a cupcake. Mm -hmm. And then to put a series of those into the container and then to accent them with you know, a, a special candy cane or, a, you know, wh whatever holiday candies you might have that are individually wrapped and sprinkle those on top. And you open it, and it's it's this wonderful treasure, but having them separated by the paper really, in my mind, keeps the flavors separated as well. Yeah, I think that's that's really important, especially uh, if you're using a cupcake a cupcake wrapper and if you go into the supply stores where they sell uh baking and cooking supplies you can actually find the wrappers for uh candy for uh that they would use for say a chocolate um like a chocolate peanut butter cup uh and they're not terribly expensive you should usually get a sleeve of them for about less than two dollars you know dollar to two dollars i mean they're not terribly expensive and you know you don't really need too many you know, yeah. um, but uh, Robin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, your book, The Ultimate Gluten-Free Cookie Book, is really such a collector's item. Uh, even if you don't require gluten-free, there's so many wonderful recipes in here that don't have a lot of uh, sugar, don't have a lot of fat in them, and you really made them and very cost-effective. It's just such a wonderful book for the collection. Well, thank you. I hope everybody eats a cookie for me. That's great. Everyone, we are out of time. 
but thank you so much for tuning in. And if you've missed the show, you can always subscribe to The Organic View on iTunes or visit our podcast archives at www.theorganicview.com. Have a great day, everyone.